The birth of Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The shepherds and the angels, and in the same region there, were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. All right, good morning. Um, so this is uh, week two in our, in our Advent series. This year we're going to go through the traditional Advent themes of, of hope, peace, joy, and love. So last week we talked about hope. Today we're talking about peace. And uh, since last week, you know, I talked about the Valley of Dry Bones and it wasn't very Christmassy. Uh, so I thought we would at least start with a Christmas passage this morning, but I also want to tell you that it's kind of a bait and switch. We're, we're going to go, we're going to start here, but go other places. And so if it's not Christmassy enough for you, like tough, like too bad. Uh, so Austin read for us the account of Jesus' birth and its announcement to the shepherd. So what's happening here is Luke is, you know, telling us about how, how Jesus' birth came to be, and specifically how it came to be in Bethlehem. And so there was this decree that went out from Caesar, and Mary and Joseph, they had to leave Nazareth, where they lived, to go down to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was, was kind of like Joseph's ancestral home, where his family was from, and he had to go there to register so that uh, the government would know, uh, you know, that they could steal their money by taxing it. And so they go to Bethlehem, and, and why they're down there, uh, the, the time for the birth comes. And, and, you know, Luke tells us that there wasn't enough room in the inn, so uh, Jesus is born, and he's laid in a manger. And that same night, he tells us that Luke's, or that, that Jesus' birth is announced to these shepherds. So these shepherds are out in a field, they're, they're nearby, an angel comes and announces to them that, that there's good news of great joy for all the people, because uh, this day, uh, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, was, has been born in Bethlehem. And then, kind of like out of nowhere, a, a multitude, a whole bunch, a host of angels appear in the night sky, and they're praising God, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is 
please. So these, these angels show up to announce the birth of Jesus to these shepherds. They say it's, it's good news of great joy because a Savior who has been born, who is Christ the Lord, and then out of nowhere, all these other angels appear, and they're praising God. They're giving him glory. And one of the things they say is that, oh, you know, peace is going to be among God's people that he is pleased with because of the birth of Jesus. And so my goal this morning Because of what Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus, because of what the angels tell the shepherds, is to answer two questions. Question one is, how does Jesus bring uh, us, his people, peace with God? And question two, how does our peace with God uh, shape the way we relate to one another? So we're after those two questions. Question one, how does Jesus bring us peace with God? Question two, how does the peace with God that we have because of Jesus shape the way that we interact with and relate to one another. So question number one, how does Jesus bring us peace with God? So the angel said, there's good news of great joy. A savior is born. They glorify God. They announce peace on the earth. So they're telling us there's some sort of connection between Jesus coming and us having peace with God. And we want to know what that connection is. So to answer that question, we're going to go to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5.1 says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here is saying that we have peace with God through Jesus. How do we have peace with God through Jesus? He says, since, because we have been justified by faith. So, so last week, We talked about hope, and we saw that there was a connection between our our justification by faith and the hope we have for eternal life. Today, we see that there's a connection between the peace we have with God uh, and our justification by faith. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down what Paul says here so we can understand what this connection is and, and how it gets us peace with God. So first, Paul starts this verse with therefore, like he does, you know, pretty much every passage. He's he's tying what he's about to say to what he has just said. In Romans chapter 4, what Paul is doing is he's explaining that Abraham was justified by faith in in God's kind of future promised salvation. He didn't know how God was going to do it, but he knew God was going to save him. And so he put his faith in those promises And Paul says in Romans 4.22, he says, that is why his faith, that's Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. And then he says it it works a similar way for us in verse 24. He says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So therefore, Paul says, because of these things, because of these truths, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So Paul here tells us that we're justified by faith, like Abraham was justified by faith in that future promise. And so the question then we need to ask is then, if it's by faith, like what is, what is justification? So I'm going to throw out a definition. And the first thing I need to tell you is that this definition has a typo. Justification is a legal act in which God declares us righteous Because he has forgiven our sins and imputed Christ's righteousness to us. So justification is a legal act in which God declares us righteous because he's forgiven our sins and imputed or or credited Christ's righteousness to us. So first things first, he he declares us righteous. Look at what it says in Luke uh, 7, 29 through 30. Uh, It says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. 
having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So what's happening in this passage is this is a, a, a parenthetical, see the parentheses, parentheses it's, a, it's a parenthetical explanation of how the people are responding to something that, that, that Jesus said about John the Baptist. So he's, he's talking about John the Baptist and the people are responding to it and Luke says like this is how they responded. And, and what we need to see here is what the people and tax collectors say. Luke says that they declared God just. Another way we could translate this is they justified God, right? It doesn't mean that they made God just. God is just, like that's who he is. They, they recognize that and outwardly, like with their voices, they said God is just, like they're, they're justifying him. Justification is a legal term to describe the verdict of a judge. Listen to this quote from this scholar who explains it for us, John Murray. He says, Regeneration is an act of God in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. That is not what a judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we are innocent, he declares accordingly. So last week, we, we talked about regeneration. That's something that happens in us, that God does inside of us. Justification is something that God does kind of outside us. He looks at us and says, like, this is, this is who they are. They're, they're, they're righteous. He declares us righteous. In justification, God is acting as a judge, making a verdict about us. And his verdict is that we are righteous. But here's the issue. We're not righteous. Right? So, so how can God make this declaration about me and about you? Well, let's look at the second part of that definition. It's a legal act where God declares us righteous because he's done two things. Number one, he's forgiven our sins. And number two, he's imputed Christ's righteousness to us. So he declares us right because he's forgiven our sins, and he's imputed Christ's righteousness to us. So we see the first half of this in places like Ephesians 1.7, which we've been going through together. It says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So God, because of Jesus, has forgiven our sin. We see the second half, that imputation of righteousness, him, him counting Jesus' righteousness for us, in places like Romans 4, 20 through 25, which we talked about earlier. Uh, this is what Paul says. He says, No unbelief made him, that's Abraham, waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We also see this later in Romans 5, 519, where, where Paul is, is talking about Jesus and he's kind of contrasting him with Adam. And he says, by, by the one man, that's Jesus' obedience, the many, that's us, will be made righteous. So in justification, God is declaring us justice because he's forgiven our sins and because he's uh, imputed Jesus' righteousness for us. Now, maybe you've heard before, heard someone say that 
that justification is, is just as if I had never sinned. And while that is kind of cutesy, and you could like cross-stitch it on a pillow, and it's memorable, like it's easy to remember, it's way easier to remember than my definition, especially since it has a typo in it, but saying justification is just as if I had never sinned is really bad theology. Justification is when God declares us righteous because he's done two things, forgiven our sins and imputed Jesus' righteousness for us. Just as if I had never sinned leaves out the second part. Let me, let me show you why this matters. So I've got these two, these two diagrams, which I have shameless, shamelessly stolen from, from Wayne Grudem. Circles. All right. So this is what happens to us when God forgives our sins. So like we're this, this first circle and all those, all those minuses are our sin, right? Sin is, sin is subtraction. Um, nope, back, back. We spoiled it for you. Now you know what's going to happen. Okay, if justification is just as if I had never sinned, like this is what happens. God forgives our sin, and then we're like this, this second circle. Like we're just a, a, a big white circle, which is good news. Right? The, the fact that our sins are forgiven is a good thing. That's, that's good news for us. But it's not gospel good news. Right? Because if this is where we're left, we are in a heap of trouble. Because what that means is that we go from being sinful to being kind of neutral. We're, we're not good yet. We, we still fall short. We still make mistakes. If God wipes out my sin, that's a good thing for me. But I'm only okay until I fall short again. And it's not going to take long for me to fill that circle back up with minuses. If this is where justification stops, then that means that the rest of my salvation is up to me. The rest of your salvation is up to you. And like that's, that's not very good news. It's certainly not gospel good news. But look at the second diagram. Right? So that first part, God forgives our sins. This is the second part. God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. So the, the pluses are Jesus' righteousness. God takes away our sins, and then he credits. He, he imputes Jesus' righteousness to us. So in God's sight, we go from being sinful to being righteous. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sin. He doesn't see us in our, our neutralness. He looks at us and he sees Jesus. Right? He takes away our sin and then he counts Jesus' righteousness on our behalf. This is why Paul can say what he says in Romans 5.1. Since We've been justified by faith. Since because of our faith, God has declared us righteousness. He's forgiven our sins. He's counted Jesus' righteousness for us. Because he's done that to us by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our faith in him, he has declared us righteous. That's who we are to him because of what he's done for us. And now we have peace with God. We're, we're no longer his enemies. We're no longer in the domain of darkness. We're no longer children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We have peace with God. And we also have to recognize that we have a pretty diminished view of peace compared to how scripture talks about it. Right? For us, peace is often just kind of the, the absence 
of conflict, right? And so if you're like, you know, if you're, if you're fighting with your spouse and then you stop fighting, you think, okay, we have peace now. Or if like your children are like running around all crazy and there's just like chaos and anarchy and then they like calm down, you think, now I have a moment of peace. But in the Bible, peace is a much deeper, a much more robust concept. In the Bible, scripture, or in scripture, peace is, is shalom, right? It's not just about the absence of conflict or the absence of chaos. It's also positive. It's, it's, it's blessing and favor from God. It's God making everything, making us the way we're supposed to be. And so if you were to come to our house right now and, and go down into our basement, you would see that there are several Legos. And those Legos are everywhere. And they are not the way that our Lego overlords intended them to be. They look nothing like the instruction books, okay? And I'm joking, right? It's fun. We want our kids to play with Legos however they want. But... If we were to enforce shalom on the Legos in our basement, all of those Legos would look exactly like the picture on the front of those manuals. They would be the way that they're supposed to be. Human beings are supposed to be in relationship with God. We're not supposed to be enslaved to sin. We're not supposed to be enslaved to death. We're not supposed to be enslaved to Satan. We're supposed to be with God and under his loving rule and in the place that he has for us. In Jesus, God is is setting everything right. He's setting us right. And if we trust in him, then we've been justified. God has made that declaration about us. Our sins have been forgiven. Jesus' righteousness is counted for us. And Paul says, because that's happened, we have peace with God. So that's question one. How do we have peace with God? Because of Jesus. It's because we've been justified by faith in him. So question two. How does that peace we have with God shape the way we relate to one another? So we're going to fast forward in Romans. Romans 12, 18 says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there's three things we need to see here. The first thing is that Paul starts this statement with the words, if possible. So Paul is acknowledging at the outset that it might not be possible to do this. There are all kinds of situations and circumstances which might make peace impossible, uh, either for a a moment or or for an extended period of time. So for example, you know, maybe you're in conflict with someone and they died. Like you cannot go to that person and, and fix that situation. Like, they're gone, so it's not possible for you to make peace in that situation. Or sometimes there is a conflict that has been years and years and years and years and years in the making. That's not something that's going to go away with one or two conversations. That's something that's going to take work, that's going to take time. And so peace will hopefully be brought in that situation, but it's going to take time. 
The second thing we need to see about this is that Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. So Paul's acknowledging here, first of all, that peace might not be possible. Second of all, that peace is not a a one-sided process. But even though Paul sees that making peace doesn't just depend on us, that doesn't mean that we don't take action. Living at peace with other people doesn't only depend on us but it does depend on us. And so there's action we need to take. There's things we need to do. There's obedience that we need to walk in. So as far as it depends on us, we should live peaceably with all people, right? Just because others are involved doesn't mean there aren't things for us to do. It doesn't mean that there's not obedience for us to walk in. So we need to take the first step. We need to lead out. We need to take the initiative. We need to pursue peace with other people as much as it depends on us. The third thing we need to see here is that even if we approach this command with with our diminished, much smaller view of peace, this is really difficult. But this becomes a, a massive call on our life when we think about it the way the Bible talks about peace. It's not just about an absence of conflict or chaos. It's also positive. It's about us living in a way that sets things right around us, that God works through us to make us in our world and the people around us the way we are supposed to be. Look at what Paul says next in this passage. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord." To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul, you're saying, he's saying like, don't do uh, the negative things that cause conflict. Uh, Don't avenge yourself. Don't be overcome by evil in the situation. But but he's also saying more than that. He's saying do positive things to actively bring peace. So so trust that God is going to bring justice in the situation. Care for your enemies. If they need food, give them food. If they need something to drink, give them something to drink. Why should we do this? Why does Paul say that we should do these things to bring peace? Well, he says, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So first of all, let's talk about what this does not mean. I do not think that this means that it's our job as Christians to, quote, kill them with kindness. You see, somewhere along the way, I think we American Christians wrongly got the idea that that is a thing that we are supposed to do. Kill them with kindness. Listen, if you think this, Stop thinking it. If you hear people say this, kindly, peacefully, correct them. Right? Really, it should be obvious. Killing people is not kind. You can't kill someone and be kind to them. You can't kill people with kindness. Right? It's, it's not a kind thing. It's unkind. 
You can kill people with unkindness for sure. Why do I think we should quit thinking this and saying this? I mean, like, other than the fact that it's common sense. Because we're called to be like Jesus. We're called to love God with with all that we are and to love our enemies, love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus did not and does not kill with kindness. And we don't want other people to kill us with kindness, so we shouldn't do that to other people. I also don't think that there's anywhere in the New Testament where, where it's, it's gleeful or glib or happy about the fact that non-Christians are going to face judgment. It teaches that it's true. It teaches that it's a, a real and a harsh reality that those who don't believe in Jesus will face. But it's never happy or gleeful about it. And it never teaches us to be that way. And so the idea that, that Paul would be telling us here that we should kill people with kindness like in hopes that they're going to face more judgment, is, is unchristian and unbiblical. Instead, I think that the next verse, the next thing that Paul says here is what's instructive for us. In verse 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Us killing with kindness would be like us trying to overcome evil with more evil. That's not us leaving, living peaceably with all. Instead, Paul says, we overcome evil with good. So so how is evil overcome? What is it that defeats sin and Satan and death? It's Jesus, right? that's, That's the answer. In order for our enemies to be overcome, they need Jesus. Like, Jesus is how evil is overcome with good. And so we don't just give our enemies food if they're hungry so that they have food. We don't just give them drinks so they have something to drink. We do those things because ultimately we want them to have Jesus. Right? They don't just need a meal. They need the bread of life. They don't just need a drink. They need the one through whom living water comes. And so us loving and serving our enemies, us trying to live at peace with everyone, even them, it, 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 it does two things. The first thing is it results in other people hearing and seeing the gospel, which Lord willing, they will respond to with faith. They'll put their faith in Jesus. God will declare them just, and then they will have peace with God, and they'll be able to live at peace with other people. Right? That is the goal. That's the hope. That's how peace will be made and how evil will be overcome with good is through Jesus. And the second thing it does is that if they don't respond in faith, then they will still have heard the gospel. They'll still have had a chance to repent. And they'll be judged for their failure to believe and their failure to repent. Like our actions will have like heaped up some additional burning coal. That's not the goal. That's not what we're after, but that is a theological reality. That's why pursuing peace matters. That's why living in a way, as far as it depends on us, at peace with other people matters. That's why we want to treat people like this. That's why we don't kill people with kindness. Because we don't want them to die. We want them to have life in Jesus. This is why pursuing peace matters. 
And one thing we didn't talk about before is, is how amazingly gracious it is that when Paul calls us toward a life of peace, he can say, if possible. Right? Without Jesus, it wouldn't be possible. Right? Peace wouldn't be possible with each other, and it certainly wouldn't be possible with God. Paul would just say, like, like it, it doesn't matter. Like, you, you can't do any of these things. Right? Without Christ, it doesn't matter. But with Paul, we can say, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our takeaway today is, number one, to, to live in light of your justification. Recognize the reality that you have peace with God. Jesus came to bring peace. And so enjoy that peace. Enjoy that relationship that Jesus purchased for you. And second, remember that because of Jesus, because we've been justified by faith in him, making peace, living in a way that is peaceable, is an option. It's possible. So because it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't. Don't be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. Because of Jesus, his righteous life counts for us. Father, we thank you that when we put our faith in Jesus, you declare us right, not because of who we are, but because of who your son is and what he's done for us. Jesus, we thank you that you came to bring peace and that because of you, we can have peace with you. We move from, from being enemies to being sons and daughters of God. And so we pray this morning that you would, you would send your spirit to help us to, to live in, to, to walk in the realities that we have peace with God. And that that wouldn't just be something that, that stays inside but that you would motivate us toward obedience so that we would live in a peaceful way with other people. That we would not be unkind, but that we would be kind. That we would overcome evil with good. And that, Jesus, that your name would be made known and that more people would be brought from death to life from enemies to at peace with you. Jesus, in your name and, and because of your sacrifice on our behalf that I pray. Amen.